Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 61 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Thanks everybody for tuning in, and thanks for everybody who tuned in to the live stream this weekend. Man, that was a good time. Uh, I'm going to find a way to get that uploaded here to YouTube, so stay tuned to uh, my Instagram or Facebook pages, and I should have that uploaded. Live stream number two will be taking place October 24th in August. Austin, Texas, and it'll be with Kim Warner, Billy Bright, and Paul Glass. Stay tuned for more details on that. They'll be coming soon. I'll also be announcing the winners here and shooting you guys emails. Uh, There's still people who are actually watching and donating, so I decided to give it a couple more days just to make it fair for everyone. And thank everyone, or thank you to everyone who made donations. I can't tell you how much we appreciated it, so... Thank you very much. Um, thank you to the sponsors as well. Uh, Carter Vintage. Uh, th- thank you to Jackalope Brewing. And then, of course, we have Peghead Nation and Mandolin Cafe. Speaking of Peghead Nation, Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including... Beginning Mandolin and Intermediate Bluegrass Mandolin with Sharon Gilchrist. She's also got the new Bluegrass Fingerboard Method. Bluegrass Mandolin Jam Favorites and the Advancing Mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh. Monroe Style Mandolin with Mike Compton. Melodic Mandolin Tunes with John Reichman. Chord Melody Mandolin with Aaron Weinstein. Irish Mandolin with Marla Feibish. And Theory for Mandolin and Fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now, and you get the first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. That's MANDOLINBEER, all one word. It's also brought to you this week by Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performances, recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And, of course, our newest sponsor, Ear Trumpet Labs. They hand-build microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. 100% you have seen those microphones um, uh, being used live by some of the top performers. So check them out. They're fantastic. So thank you so much. Thank you to the listeners. Please be sure to subscribe and uh, follow me on Facebook and Instagram. Mark Stoffel has a brand new website up. His album comes out Friday. You'll hear me talk about it on the podcast, but the packaging is incredible, and I really do recommend you buy the physical copy if you can, and you can do that at his website. I'll have a link at mandolinsabeer.com. It is, it is amazing. It's a great CD, and the packaging really just, really just sends it over the top. And it's available physically to order today. All right, so let's get into the interview with Mark. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Cheers. Have yourselves a fantastic week. All right, now it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Mr. Mark Stoffel. He's got a brand new album coming out this Friday. How you doing, Mark? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Man, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Congratulations on the uh, the release date Friday. I know it was a, uh, you and I have been <laughs> kind of coordinating for a few months now and this whole pandemic kind of put the release date a little bit uh, behind, but I'm so glad to see that it's coming out. Yeah, it's it had to be coordinated and I'm with Mountain Home Music um, uh, Records um, and and uh and you know they it's important that everything is coordinated and, and that because they're so helpful and so beneficial to 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 their artists um that you know it really it really is good to cooperate with them and not <laughs> and not you know not uh kind of get ahead of them with releasing or you know so part of the which is funny part of the uh this whole um system with scheme seems to be that you built up suspension you know and there's all these these teasers that are that go out on on social media and then they tease you with just a 30 second clip and then they tease you with just one song and and but then but but yet yet the release date is still uh, a couple months you know away but it's it's funny how that works and i guess it works because 
because now we're at that point at the release date, and there seems to be a lot of interest. Absolutely. Well, and just this morning on my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe, you had mine the, too. Yes, that's awesome. And, <laughs> and there's nothing more exciting than having something on the front page there. And this morning, well, you were uh-huh. on the front page, and, it, and they premiered your brand new video for this tune, In the Mood. mandolin players in this video <laughs> how did you come up with this this idea to do such a wild concept for this tune this is uh this goes you know i'm from germany um and uh and i used to have a band in the 80s um and so now i'm dating myself a little bit but uh but we we we, we decided to learn that tune and work it up the guitar player knew how to play the mandolin pretty well and uh, and then we even recorded it in the studio and I did some overdubs, but that's how far back that goes. But we didn't have, you know, a whole a whole ensemble of mandolinists. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I I just took it to a new level in this time, thirty years later, you know, or even more than thirty years. Jesus, long. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah. But yeah, so that that's where that comes from. Um, the idea, and I've just decided this is perfect because now I know um, most of those people that I invited um, to play on it, and I knew that they would be excited to do it. I, I knew I could sell them um, to the idea, and 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 so one thing leads to another, and so we ended up end up rec- recording it. So it's it, really yeah, exciting. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing in the video and. And all that. So if you if, if if listeners out there have not checked this out, they need to as soon as this podcast is over, go to uh, go to Mandolin Cafe and check out this this video of In the Mood. And it, it, it's amazing. How long did it take to get the recording portion of that together? As far as the just the audio, um, yeah, there was a multi uh, prong process. Uh, it started out with me going up to Evanston, Illinois, which is um, um, uh, near Chicago, um, and also coincidentally is, is where uh, where um, Jethro Burns uh, used to live. Yes. His, and so this is where um, Don Sternberg lives, mm-hmm. close to there, and he, that's where he records all his jazz records that are wonderful. And um, and I've gotten to know uh, know John during the past few years, and I asked him to be the backup band. So his band. And his trio is sort of the, uh, or he and the guitar and the bass player are sort of the backbone of the whole thing. And so I went up there and recorded all the basic tracks for everyone else to play too. So, but it took, even to get to that point, I had to have a real clear idea of the arrangement and everything else. So a lot of footwork went went into this before we even, before I even went to Chicago. <laughs> but once I had it, once I had those tracks from in Chicago, and then I did a bunch of editing and, and getting stuff ready for overdubs. And then I made two trips to Nashville um, to invite, um, to get, you know, some of the folks that live in the, in the Nashville area to mm-hmm. come to the studio. And I chose um, Ben Surratt, um, um, the rec room in uh, in Nashville. Oh, great yeah. guy, yeah. super super nice guy, and great engineer. And so that's where we did a bunch of overdubs with Mike Compton and Jesse Brock and Tristan Scroggins and Casey Campbell and so on. Nate Lee and uh, Ashby Frank and and um, and um, and everybody else lived too far away, and it would have been not feasible financially. Uh, to, to, to make these trips, especially, especially to Italy or the Netherlands or France. Um, so basically, you know, just sent them the tr- sent them tracks to play to uh, with clear instructions. Everything had to be tabbed out. This is not, this was not, or is obviously not a thing where you can just, oh, it's, it's an orchestral piece. So you had to have a part and there were like three different mandolin parts. And then there was a mandocello and mandola and, and, 
octave mandolin part um and those were meticulously figured out <laughs> and then i sent <laughs> then i sent everyone a folder with their parts and also with tabs and and everything they needed and everybody just you know took the grabbed the ball and ran with it and and I, the results were wonderful and I can't imagine just the editing for that video also had to be a bit of a <laughs> just a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, editing the the audio was a lot of work uh, because I had everyone play a full solo. Now this is interesting. I had everyone play a full solo over the uh, over that improvisation part. Oh wow! That that was the only part where they w- could do whatever they wanted to do and go crazy basically. And <laughs> and um, but but for the. Uh, for the record, for the version on this on the album, you know, you don't want to have a nine-minute piece. So, <laughs> right. so I had to, so I had to take like, like sort of chunks, bits and pieces from every solo and kind of edit them together so they all kind of blend. And that took a long time because you want the way I edited it. Edited it was, uh, you know, one melody ends and the other one kind of continues. Or one mandolin player ends, and and then the next player comes in, and, and it sort of make makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's like starting a sentence and finish a sentence, even though those parts were not played together at the same room and and completely isolated isolated from one another. Um, but you know, if if you listen to it long enough, um, it kind of turns into a big musical puzzle. And if you if <laughs> 1500 pieces mind you <laughs> tiny tiny <laughs> tiny tiny pieces <laughs> and uh and 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 so i just you know after a while i decided this is good enough i'll leave it that way but you know so that's the the, the version that's in the video and and also on the album but uh but i have a version that's seven minutes long that has every solo uncut i mean back to back it's it's purely for geeks. <laughs> we'll send a copy my way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will. Oh, I will. thanks. So, so, That'd be great. And the idea, and the idea was uh, that it, it it goes on the album as a as a blind or hidden track. But um, it it became clear that this is not a good option because you have to pay mechanical licenses, and the long and the and the longer and the longer a track is, it doubles or triples. Oh, the amount wow. that it costs, and so the so so the label just said, "No, it's not a good idea." There's many <laughs> other ways we can. There's many other ways we can do this. Um, plus, it like for instance, just throwing out a link at some point and saying, "Here's the, you know, here's the, the uncut version," and and uh, and and do it like that because that's probably very minimal interest. Most most normal people would probably um, <laughs> be. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. Yes, there's a, there's a, but there's a, there's a group of mandolin nerds out there, uh, such as myself, who would love oh, to yeah, hear absolutely. that. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you um, you grew up in Germany. Yes. All right. So how'd you get into mandolin over there? I when I was fourteen, my mom got me a mandolin for Christmas, and uh, and then I ran to a music store in Munich. To find something, you know, that that I that I that would help me figure out what I could do with this instrument. Mm-hmm. It was a real cheap mandolin made in, the, in Czechoslovakia, um, but it didn't matter, you know. It was any, it, was, it, it just got me started and and uh, and was and it, and it served its purpose. And uh, and I found Jack Toddle's book, Bluegrass Mandolin, which I still highly recommend. Oh, it's a great to book to anyone. It's a great book, yes, because it's clear and it's got this little record. And it defines all the styles, and it's just a great book. And um, I took it home, put that little forty-five on the record player, and and started playing along right away. So it was that's that's how that started. So it was bluegrass that got you into it, um, as opposed to say classical or anything like that. Well, I had uh, Katarina on a, a while ago. Lichtenberg, yes, you know? yeah, and so she was into the classical version of it kind of right away. And so I didn't know if that was yeah. something and. You know, in Germany, but so you you got right into the real bluegrass fan beforehand. I sort of was. I was more of a, uh, and I don't mean that um, sarcastically. I was sort of an American music fan, uh-huh. including bluegrass. Um, and when I grew up, I listened to a lot to Armed Forces Network (AFN) um, in Munich because there were like a couple hundred thousand U.S. Uh, military military personnel 
that lived uh, in Bavaria or Munich in particular. And, uh, and so I really liked the music on AFN so much better than the mu than all the music that was available on German radio at the time. Sure. And, and, you know, there was like good music on, on pop and country and every once in a while you hear a bluegrass song, especially Foggy Mountain Breakdown. <laughs> that would, they would play that every once in a while. And, and I always thought this is so cool. And, um, so I, I didn't really know probably that it was called bluegrass, but I, I sort of, I loved the, the vibes and the feel of it right away. So you get that Jack Toddle book. Did you start, was it, was it tougher to find like bluegrass recordings? Yes. No, it was very tough. Uh, and, um, and so just to, give you the time frame here we're talking about like right around 1980 um and uh and so that was slightly before seed compact discs were even coming out um so everything was vinyl and yeah there were just a few stores like with eth eth like ethnic music stores or whatever they had a section on, on 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 bluegrass and folk and you could find a few and so what i found which which was pretty good stuff to go by was like um, Hot Rise, Country Gazette, Seldom Seen. Well, on the soul rock pile, with a bowling Then all the Tony Rice stuff, uh, the David Grisman Rounder album was one of the first records that I could get my own, my, my hands on, which is a great album. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, and then, then of course, uh, some of the Newgrass Revival stuff. But in general, more of the, at the what was considered at the time highly progressive um, stuff. Um, that I cut my te my teeth on early on in the eighties, um, and uh, but it was hard. To, and then you know, like in any hobby, you find like minded people somehow. Even before before the days of uh, the World Wide Web, you put a, there was there was a little bulletin board or somewhere in a music store, and you put a little note there that says, you know, I play bluegrass. Anybody else here? And uh, so you find you find like-minded people wherever they are, and so we had a little band going, and then everybody had different records, and so we kind of swapped and we made each other made each other copies on cassette tapes, that kind of thing. I still have those cassette tapes from way back then, and it's and um, and they still work, and it's pretty cool to hear <laughs> hear that stuff today. Oh, I bet. What are some of the what are some of the um the those cassette tape recordings that you got that were uh, was there anything in there kind of unique that I'm always interested in um people's other influences sometimes besides like you know like Bill Monroe and in some of those bands were there any really unique ones that maybe not people might not be familiar with Yeah absolutely there was one that not everybody had the same taste and people had different uh, resources or sources from which they could get their records and there was one guy who was into into the traditional sound and he gave me a tape and he made, he made me sort of a sampler of what he liked. And there was like Herschel Sizemore and the Stanley brothers and that kind of stuff on there. It's the first time when I heard, first time I heard Rank Stranger, for instance. Um, and, uh, and, and some of the early Herschel stuff, um, um, beautiful version of Stony Creek, I think, but, you know, that cross picking oh, right. version of it. Um, so, so I dug that immediately also, but I didn't, I, I never saw any of those records. Yeah. That's wild. So was there kind of like a music scene then too, for that, for you to, to start gigging at? Um, yes, but not a music scene that, that is, a typically knowledgeable of the music you gotta 
uh, American music in Europe um, or worldwide, I mean, it's, it's sort of lumped together with a, a lot of other stereotypes that people hold about, in this instance, United States. So, so you would get invited to play somewhere in Germany and then people would show up dressed as cowboys. <laughs> there's all these stereotypes that people at the time held or had about, about America, United States. It's like trucks, trucks, you know, from the convoy movies. Um, and, uh, and, you know, a lot of it is also informed by this whole Western movie culture, you know. Right. And so you play somewhere, and that's just a small part of what they want to experience mm-hmm. is the music, you know, a little fiddle or banjo. They don't really particularly pay attention to the lyrics, and they don't really particularly pay attention listen. They just drink beer and have a good time. <laughs> and, uh, and as long as it's close enough and fits the stereotype, you're good. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're good to go. You know, how do you how do you find yourself a professional bluegrass player, especially in an area like you said where, you know, bluegrass is definitely not a uh, a real big style per se of music. No, it's not. And uh well, I I did, you know, just to clarify, I'm not really a professional bluegrass player now i'm kind of semi because i do have to feed a family oh sure <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so i i work for a, for a university here in southern illinois and um and i've been here for i've worked for this place since pretty much since i moved here and it's great and i love it and it also i do a, a lot of the you know that's that, because i like working with media and and video and audio and so forth and that's what i do and that's what i teach Oh, neat. And so that so so that fits really well. Um, but but um, but in the '90s, I played professionally in uh, professionally in Germany, and we did maybe 150 gigs a year, um, and and traveled all over. So I I did do a lot of playing there, and it just kind of happened to to work out that way. You know, I never really pursued it. I never I never really wanted to. I'm going to be a professional musician and I'm going to not, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's just the offers were just overwhelming. Um, and so we just decided to just go for it. And, it, and, you know, it was also a time in my life where I didn't have any liabilities, which sure. is great because, because you can just, you know, live fancy free and not worry and just do whatever, whatever seems, you know, fitting and fun at the moment. Well, I'm past those days. <laughs> you still put in a lot of gigs, though, when, when gigs were, um, well, when people were playing anyway. Um, yeah. With Chris, yes. well, Chris Jones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris doesn't play a whole lot compared to uh, some other bands like Special C, Special Sh- Consensus. They have one hell of a, um, a schedule. But um, Chris, um, uh, who, you know, he lives in, in Alberta. And and our bass player lives in Virginia, and our banjo player in, in Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> so we live far apart. But when we get together, we play three or four gigs, maybe five, and then we split again. But we don't do these two, three week long runs all over the place. Sure, be- because we all have obligations and family and and stuff to do. But I mean, we we squeeze it as hard as we can, <laughs> and um, and and that's just just fine. So were there other bands? Did, were you running into some of these influences then as you started traveling around in Germany and, and Europe, some of these bands that you were listening to? Did you start playing gigs with people like that? No, except for one. Uh, well, for the most part, no. Um, but I did go see a lot of concerts. There was this tiny little uh, club maybe an hour away from where I lived, and that's where I saw Bill Keith. Uh, that's where I saw Doyle Lawson, Quicksilver, like, Almost the original formation was with with Randy Graham on uh, on bass, not Lou Reed, and uh, and Tony Trishkin and Skyline, and I saw Mike Marshall, and Daryl Anger, and I mean, and it was this tiny little place, but I we went they they would come to Europe and 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 play some gigs in Switzerland and Austria and Germany and maybe France, and that one place in Bavaria was where they would always stop, and it was a perfect little listening room. And I have such fond memories. Oh, and so then here's, cool. yeah, and here's a here, and and uh, here's a funny story. I 
I was totally ate up with Newgrass Revival and particularly Sam Bush. I just totally ate up with his style and their music and loved his tone and everything about it. And so they were going to come to Europe, except they would, it was, it was, they were scheduled to play at a bluegrass festival in France in Toulouse, France, which is in Southern France. And, uh, I, I had no money and no job just out of high school basically. <laughs> and so, and so somehow I made it over there hitchhiking and with a lot of people's help and support, <laughs> I just ended up there and I saw the new grass survival oh, in Toulouse, wow. France. And I was like starstruck. And, um, also that night was the Salem scene, um, and hot rise and, and 20, I think skyline. Yes. 20 years and skyline. Um, I may conflate, um, a little bit because I went again the next year. And, oh, sure. <laughs> but, uh, in any case, Newgrass Revival actually had a, uh, produced a live album from, from their concert. It's live in, live in Toulouse. And I actually heard it on Sirius XM yesterday. I heard one of their songs. I'll be headed for a break. Can't stop now. Oh yeah. yeah. I heard that one yesterday. And then, and then it's like, man, it's a different version than the studio version. And then I heard that big applause. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I'm in there hollering <laughs> because I was in that, in that arena when they played and, um, and yeah, no kidding. They made a, a live uh, album out of it and, and I was there. So, yeah, but that was such a, such a, uh, I don't know, life changing event to go there and see those guys. Sure. So then how do you find yourself in the United States? Was it then, was it like work or was it music or how did you come over to the U S I was interested in going to college. Mm -hmm. okay? And so I found a way to enroll at Southern Illinois University and uh, stayed there for three years, graduated in 1992, and then went back to Germany. But that was sort of, sort of when I opened the door to that because, because, because this is how I ended up I, I, well, making a lot of friends, making a lot of connections, starting to really like this area here in Southern Illinois, super beautiful. And, um, and when there was an opportunity to come back, um, in 2000, I just, I just came back and not, not soon after that, I, I, I met my wife and we had children and, and that kind of sealed the deal. Now I'm here. <laughs> and, uh, and in 2016, I became a citizen and uh and lost my german citizenship so wow as a result yeah holy cow that's wild what a story man so then all this time just playing mandolin like crazy still in all, in all those years kind of in between like going to school and and then going oh, back yeah, to germany always. oh yeah. Yeah. yeah oh yeah that never went away i mean there's there are times in my life where there was a little less and times in my life there's a little bit more sometimes it's really good like when i moved here uh to go to college i I, uh, it was actually nice to not play so much and get really rusty and, and wait for that moment where you suddenly feel this, this hunger and inspiration. And, and then, and then that really helps. And then, and then just kind of start over now, nowadays I, I, I can't really afford to not play at all and just <laughs> give, give it a little bit of rest, which otherwise I find is very healthy for anything that you do. Uh, but I, I can't really do that because you fall too far behind, especially with, you know, how to, I mean, playing mandolin in a bluegrass band, let's be honest, is, a it should be an Olympic discipline. <laughs> uh, it, Absolutely. Cause it's so, it takes so much strength, right hand, left hand, you know, those double strings that super high tension, just fretting down. It's so much easier to fret a guitar or a fiddle or, or any other instrument, but a mandolin is like, ah, and <laughs> And uh, and then the right hand, especially when when you get up to a certain speed that's that's demanded off you, it's tough, you know. So so I I have this treadmill approach where I try to do a half an hour of that every day, and it's not particularly creative. It's not, but it's it's just to to keep my right hand and my left hand in shape more more so the right hand actually because that to me is what, what, what causes or what creates the tone and the drive. Right. 
So how did you find yourself um, playing with Chris Jones in, in, in a pretty prominent group of, I mean, he's the line of players that have been in that band are some pretty incredible players, including yourself. Um, well, so how does, um, how does that end up happening? Well, the connection is Europe. And, and uh, let me, because I went to college here in, in, in the late 80s and early 90s, I got to meet other pickers from Illinois, and one of them was Doug Connect. Who, um, who's a, an amazing banjo player. His last name spells K-N-E-C-H-T. Um, and he's, he was the first banjo player for Chris Jones and the Night Drivers later on. When, the, when it was um, Jesse Brock and Doug Connect mm-hmm. and Chris, and I forgot who played the bass. Um, and, you know, it's not important that I remember because I wasn't part of the band. But, uh, <laughs> but, it was, but, but, but because of Doug in the band, the whole band came came to stay at my house in Germany on their first tour to Europe. Oh wow! And that was must have been ninety six, uh, nineteen ninety six. So they all stayed at our house. It was sort of the base camp for them, and it was a lot of fun. They had these guys there, and this is when I met Chris for the first time, and hit it off with him right away because he's he's such a nice, gentle, genuine, people loving human being. So so that was. That was the first time. That's amazing. And, and then we kept in touch, um, stayed in touch, and um, one thing leads to another. Well, when I moved to the United States in 2001, um, played in a couple local bands, but then Sally Jones, his wife, who's, who's, uh, who's an amazing singer, songwriter, and guitar player, um, she asked me to play a festival somewhere in in British Columbia with her and sent me the tapes and everything I needed to have. And it was, and so that was one of my, and that, so, so I did this gig and then Chris showed up and because obviously they're married and they live up there and um, we talked and then he asked me eventually if, uh, if, uh, if I was interested to join the night drivers because the, the mandolin position in the, um, during that time was, was sort of an, un, there was not a steady player. They always had to sort of fill in. And you know, that lim, that really limits a band if you don't have one sound group of people playing off of each other all the time to where it kind of becomes one. Mm-hmm. So he, he, they, they had different folks filling in. And so, and now it's funny. Now I'm the senior member. <laughs> I um I saw you guys live at um the Station Inn for the CD release party where Chris lost his voice. Oh yeah, and so we had all these guests on. Yeah, that kind of say that saved us, Ron Block, and yeah. What an what, I mean, if you're going to lose your voice for a CD release party, you can't pick a better town for a bluegrass band than Nashville. <laughs> But the one thing I noticed, um, especially, was you're playing. You're so relaxed, and um, and Gina Furtado uh, says this about your playing. She's like, when I think of Mark's playing, I just think beautiful. Oh, and she's right, man. Your your tone and technique, you um, just everything you played, no matter what the tempo was, was just kind of like, oh wow, <laughs> you know, it just grabbed your attention. So I, I wanted to talk, we were talking a bit about this before we started recording, and I was talking with Grace, the current banjo player, and she said you recommended this book, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about it, because it was a game changer. Yeah, so um, I, I mean, I got thrown into this, into this, into this pond with mostly big fish. <laughs> I was really intimidated, because I thought I was just a minnow. And, uh, and, and, and worth nothing, you know, I'm not worthy. I shouldn't be there. I have no business here, blah, blah, blah. So we play all these, these, these huge festival festivals and, and that I've, that I've never dreamed of, of even, you know, having a chance to play on, on stages like that. So I, I was extremely intimidated. Everybody's kind of like, as if everybody tracks every note and especially every mis- mistake you make. Mm-hmm. And this is why so many uh, would-be great musicians never turn out to play music. It's because there's this fear that 
you could make a mistake or this is fear that whatever you do is just doesn't live up to other people's expectations. And, uh, and that is a concept that, uh, Kenny Werner, the author of the book, effortless mastery, um, hones in on, didn't he, 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 he's a, you know, the, the crux here, the, the, to summarize the book, it's like, be happy with yourself. Don't worry about what other people think about your playing. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if I do the book justice to just sum it up in two sentences, but, but it's so helpful. I, you open the book and you see yourself in the first paragraph and it just kind of sucks you in. It's, and, and if you think about it, some of the best or some of the most famous artists or scientists, people who've made a name for themselves, Bill Monroe, for one of them, uh, you know, uh, for one, it, they did not give a hoot about what other people were thinking. And you can just go through this whole long list of, of musicians, painters, scientists, and, and, and it's clear that these people were thinking outside of the box. They didn't care what other people thought. And that's why they got to a place of notoriety. Mm -hmm. And, um, and on a small scale, that's true for all of us. It's not to say that we all need to be little Einsteins in our, in our, in our field, but, but you, but there's certainly a, a small part of what you do that nobody else can do. Absolutely. And you need to just embrace that portion and, 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 and run with it. And, and then everything should be fine. Never try to be someone else. In other words, like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's like, yeah, I mean, how, how, how demoralizing is it really to watch Chris Steele? <laughs> 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 uh, 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 you know, those partitas, Johann Sebastian Bach, you know, I was like, I, like, I want to, I want to just put my man in the trash can, but that's what I used to think. Now I, I watch him and, and I, and I'm, and I'm enthused, you know, I love it, I, but I never, I never in my, in my, in my wildest dreams imagined that I would be able to do this because I can't, I have, you know, I do something else just to make a long story short here. This, it's a great book and it really helped me to throw all, all these, all these fears and trepidations and just overboard because most, most everybody, if not everybody in the audience and especially all our colleague uh, musicians that you meet at festivals are super appreciative of what you do. And I couldn't have found a more supportive bunch of people wherever you go who really like what you, you know, or who, who are not envious and not, I mean, they're more curious and, and supportive. And that's, that's my experience at least. And, and that book really helped me in getting there, you know. And the, yeah, you know, people learn by making mistakes. I think that's something we all forget. Like, oh, some of the, you know, many of the greatest things that we take for granted on a daily basis were made, you know, by somebody who goofed something up and figured another way to do it, you know. You got to make those mistakes to uh, get Oh, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, very true. So, well, let's talk about this incredible new album. And first off, thank you for sending me a copy. Um, it's Coffee and Cake, and it's got great liner notes. It's the one thing I miss the most about digital music is what you did with this album. So the first thing I'm going to implore my listening audience to do is buy a physical copy of this album because it's got notes on the songs. It's got great artwork. It's This is why I miss physical music, man. The, this I'm holding it in my hands right now, and it just makes me so happy when I got it to see all this information. I think it's awesome. 
Well, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. When it, you know, it's it's great. We miss all these incredible little things. But let's talk about the music. How long has this been in the works? I know you had a, a an album that came out around 2008 as well before this a solo project. Yeah, that was 2008 before before children and uh, and not much of a, an idea of what, where I wanted to go. It was a bit of a hodgepodge. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then and then at that I had just barely joined Chris Chris Jones, and this was sort of the new awakening um, to where I I was I was I got so much inspiration from traveling with people and meeting so many amazing musicians and and then also recognizing my own strengths and my own abilities which before I was taken for granted like most most people do which you know is something that you know kind of goes back to this book that I was talking about and so 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 when I and then I was talking about about doing another CD for many, many years. And I talked to Chris about it and I said, yeah, maybe we can have some songs and maybe you can sing on it and blah, 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 blah. And uh, it was just so hard because with the touring schedule and, and family and job and have I mentioned, I have a 40 acre farm that needs to be oh, managed. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's really crazy. So I, so I, I was just always, I was very, um, reluctant to, to, to get this started. But, but then finally I just gave myself a push and I started and I, and, and, and scheduled a recording and, and, and worked with, with a very good friend of mine, the guitar player, his name is Josh Morrison, who co-produced the thing. I, um, I love the title track, Coffee and Cake. album that um no i didn't and that's not to disappoint you but that's the nice thing about an instrumental you can just name it anything oh absolutely <laughs> but in in some case in some cases you know it's it, not every title fits every instrumental obviously but in this case i think it had a different working title but i i always liked the concept of coffee and cake and mm-hmm. how it kind of rolls off the tongue it's kind of my old world um, experience because that's such a huge thing in Europe, especially in Germany. You know, as people, people just let it drop everything at three three o'clock in the afternoon, and it's coffee and cake. You know, it's a it's a thing. Just like they have tea time in in England, but but my my parents and my relatives and in my culture that that was a thing even on a weekday not just on the weekend but especially on the weekend and on the weekend you get whipping cream on your cake too oh. so. <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah and and so i always thought it was a, it's just a happy moment in 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 life in a you know where you where everybody just drops everything and you sit down and and visit and eat, eat coffee, uh, drink coffee, and eat cake. The Old Mountaineer, Bill Monroe tune. How did you pick that one? This is interesting. Uh, I 
you know, I go, I'm friends with Jens Krüger, who who back in the '80s had had his his band in in Europe, the Krüger Brothers, before they moved to North Carolina, and and I got to meet him really really good or really well in, in the in the mid '90s, and mm -hmm. we recorded some, and and we became friends. And so we kind of ran into each other a lot. He moved to, to North Carolina before I moved to Illinois. But that was this one time where we sat down with, with a fiddle player from, from, from Germany also. And then this, this tune popped out. And so he, they, they both kind of played that tune and I just loved it. And I kind of, and then the fiddle player and Jens, they kind of showed me how it went. And, and I've, I've always wanted to do this ever since. I know that, that um, it was also recorded by Michael Cleveland several years ago, which coincidentally, and I don't know that for, for a fact, but Mike Cleveland and Jens are, are, are friends also. And it, it, there's a likelihood that, that Jens uh, is the influence or has something to do with, with, with that also, that, you know, that Mike Cleveland recorded. But I don't know. So this is, this is just speculation. The thing is, it's not a very, it's not a very, I mean, there's many obscure Bill Monroe instrumentals. This one is semi-obscure because there is actually a recording of it. Uh, I think live in Bean Blossom, sometime in the seventies, I think. Uh, but it's not on a studio record. And you also do two of my favorite, um, two of my favorite fiddle tunes, uh, Daily's Reel and Make a Little Boat. Daily's Reel is another one I learned in Germany, um, and B-flat is such a great key for fiddle tunes because, because just everything sounds slightly different. You have the third, you know, the, the, the third note in your scale as an open string, as opposed to having, like, your, your first note mm -hmm. as an open string. If you're in the key of G, you have the, the, the first note and the fifth as open strings, the G and the D, and it gives it a very nice kind of a hard sound. Well, B flat is just so different. You play like a D note, the open D note, and it's like the third in the B flat chord. Right. And then you play the low G note, and that's the third in, in your E flat, in your four chord. And so that, that it's just so, uh, that's, a, that's, that's just a, a lovely, you know, I just like that. So all the B flat tunes, on fiddle and mandolin sound just very distinctive. Yeah, I love Make a Little Boat and and uh, no, um, Daily's Real B flat and Make a Little Boat was one that that John Weisberger, um, who was the bass player with Chris Jones and the Night Drivers at the time, and he he recommended that one to me and and I I learned that one. Yeah, and you, a little Kenny Baker theme too. You have Frost on the Pretzel. I had, you know, the original title for this tune was Beer and Pretzels. Ah, was it really? Which you might appreciate. Absolutely. Podcast. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, that was the original name for the, for the tune. Um, but then I just switched it to Frost and the Pretzel because I did, I, 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 you know, Kenny Baker had these real almost Western swingy, Texas style fiddle tunes where there's some key changes and a lot of little trills in there, you know, just beautiful. And so I, I thought of Kenny Baker after writing this tune. And so I, I, and so I 
I changed the title just to give a little shout out to um, one of the best fiddlers in bluegrass music. He's amazing. And, and, and the other great thing about this is just your songwriting. That's just great tunes, man. Every, every one of these songs is, is just, just cool and fun to listen to and sounds amazing, which brings us to the gear portion. Uh, let's talk about your main axe. I only have one F mandolin, mm-hmm. and um, it's a Gilchrist F5 from uh, that was built in 1981. It's the one that has S holes instead of F holes. There's a little thing missing there, I guess. Whatever. It's an expert. <laughs> it's an X brace. Um, it's a it has a fern inlay in the headstock, and I've had it for close to 28 years. Wow. And I, I bought it from Tom Rosum, um, mandolin player with Laurie Lewis, mm-hmm. um, who was one of the many folks who came through Europe and stayed at, at our house um, while they were touring. Just like I told you earlier, Chris Jones and the Night Drivers came to stay at our house. So Laurie Lewis and Grand Street came to stay at our house. And that's how I got to meet Rob Ikes and many other people who played with her at the time. And but um, so Tom came and he had he 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 had just purchased a 1929 Gibson Fern F5, and 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 he had this one for sale. Wow! I didn't know much at the time about about quality F5s. I had. Just my my mandolin at the time was a Kentucky K and Dog mandolin, which was actually a very good mandolin. And then when Tom came and said, "Yeah, this is for sale. Are you interested?" I, you know, I was just like, I don't know how much. Well, it was like it seemed a lot of money, like <laughs> yeah. a lot of money, which though at the time, well, of course it was a lot of money, and when you don't have money. You know, even a little amount of money is a lot of money. In any case, I took a lot of. I really has. I had to like think about it and um, and how do I do this and blah blah blah. So, well, I ended up buying it, going into debt. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I couldn't be. You know, in hindsight, it was one of the best things I've ever done. And I've I've never looked elsewhere. You know, I've never looked for another mandolin. Um, you know, some some people are always on a on a hunt for the holy grail, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm I found it early on, so I I'm good. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> man. Yeah, it sounds mm-hmm. it sounds just amazing. You know, I've had the good fortune to see you live, and then obviously on the album too, and um and it. But it, it it's it also you know it sounds like you <laughs> as well. So you know, well you, you know, and if you have an instrument for that for that amount of time, it, you become one with it. And I think this is true for, 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 for everyone who's, who's played the same instrument for a long time, you know, exactly where the sweet spot is and where to attack it, attack it. And, you know, there's all these, these, these very fine differences and details that you, you don't, you don't, you don't, it'll take you a while to acquire them. Um, if you grab, if you have a new instrument, it's like, you know, it's like your friend and you, you just don't know every character trait of your friend in the first or second or third year. You know, those are things that just develop over time. What's your favorite thing about that mandolin? Uh, it's consistency. It's it, the consistency in tone and tuning. It, it just never fails. And I had a, a Gibson. It had my my Gilchrist had to go to, to the to the to the shop for three months, or two months almost in Nashville. Hugh Hansen, really good builder. Oh yeah, I know Hugh. And he uh and it needed it needed a new uh, a, a neck set slightly and a new fingerboard, and um, so I didn't have it. So Ned Luberecki had a had an, a Gibson. One of those, it was actually a flat iron made by Gibson in Nashville and, um, and pretty good sounding mandolin, but that was eye opening because it, it just didn't, it wasn't consistent at all. 
you know, it is just like you walk out from the shade into the sun and boom, it was out of tune. You know, it's like <laughs> 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 stuff like that. Yeah. And, and, and so the Gilchrist, it, it does, I mean, it changes a little bit depending on humidity uh, or whatever slightly, but it's always there for you. You know, it's, it never fails. And that's probably what I appreciate most about it. So what do you string it up with? Yes, I have the A270 set. Um, it's it's phosphor bronze, I think. Uh, those those are nice. Um, sometimes I wish the E string would be a little um, thicker because it starts buzzing. Because my my action is is actually pretty darn low, and and sometimes the E string starts buzzing depending on how dry it gets in the winter. And and I know that if if the E string was a little had a little bit more meat, um, probably wouldn't do it. Um, but you know, otherwise, but it's very difficult to get a, a custom set, and and really not worth anybody's trouble. Um, but yeah, I really like those strings. And then I'm I'm a I'm a big supporter of fast bread. Oh yeah, um, I love and, it. And I've used fast bread for like thirty years. I mean, and which is funny because fast fast bread, if you if your listeners don't know, it's 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 a little stick that has that you that you. It's like a deodorant for you, for your man. <laughs> 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 uh, just to uh, coat the strings after you play, after you wipe them down, and you put it in your case, and 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 it it will not um, corrode or oxidize while you know while you don't play them. Yeah, I've got a can right here. Yes, and what's funny about fast bread <laughs> is that, you know when I first started using fast bread, it was a metal can. With a wood and and that little stick had a wooden handle. They did away with the metal can and gave gave it this cheap plastic thing. Uh-huh. Now they're back. Now they're back to the metal can. It's like yes, retro. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and the wooden stick. Okay, that's that's part of the past, and I and I get that. It's okay to use plastic, but at least now it has this little this little cap to keep to seal the the moisture, um, and it's really useful because the United States is at least if you uh, if you live in the South and Midwest. As you know, can be a humid hellhole. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And and, uh, and 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 a lot of festivals are in that setting, you know. Mm-hmm. And that really, really helps to preserve the strings, so you don't have to like change strings every every six hours at a festival. Right. I actually put it on in between tunes sometimes on super humid days too, because it just gives you a little bit more, a bit more slippy, little slip and slide on the strings when it's humid and your hands are a wreck. Yes, that's right. Well, I got two more questions for you, Mark. And um, the first one is if you had 10 minutes a day to recommend something to work on for someone, just to focus on something for a week, what would you recommend? Yes. Okay. Um, Number one, learn tunes, not just licks. Um, Because it's through tunes that you get an idea or you recognize melody lines. And you can use those melody lines for other tunes or when you improvise at a later point. So it's, it always amazes me that I find all these amazing young pickers places and I throw out, hey, let's do this tune, let's do this tune. And they don't know any tunes. All they know is like to play fast in, in jams and just play licks at, a, at lightning speed. Right. That's, um, that's so true. And, uh, and so I think it's, it's, it's really fun to know tunes because that, that connects you with people who can play with you. And and plus, you really benefit from 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 the melodies, and 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 I think that kind of sinks in into your it kind of gives you. I don't know. I'm, I'm running out of vocabulary. Haven't noticed. <laughs> I'm not, haven't haven't mentioned I'm not a native speaker. Okay, and uh, and uh, okay, and the second thing I uh, another thing I recommend highly highly is is right hand discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, practice with a metronome. Strictly apply the down upstroke, down upstroke uh, principle to where you syncopate, and when this when the syncopation actually happens to be on an upstroke, do it on an upstroke, um, regardless of how 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 you might feel about it, because then you get the drive when you actually play faster, um, and that's what makes the mandolin drivey if you have that solid right hand where you can 
throw in an upstroke to get a really good syncopation out of it. Um, I, I just taught a workshop for um, the Walnut Valley um, Bluegrass Festival or Music Festival, and that was my that was, that was the theme of the workshop, and and it was called "The Right Hand Is Your Motor." Oh, nice! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway, so that's that. I find that really important. It's something that seems to be really neglected, even among intermediate players. Um, and an easy an easy giveaway would be, hey, play turkey in the turkey in the straw for me. You know that B part that goes do 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 do. So well, the do 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 is like down up up down down up up down. And and if you do it like that, I know your your right hand is 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 calibrated correctly. But if you do <laughs> down up down up down up, then you're wrong because because that always throws you off. So those kind, those tiny little details um, make a huge difference. Um, of course, there are exceptions to the rule. Cross picking is different, or like Monroe style, where you do all kind of downstrokes. But for the most part, for for the drive in your right hand, and that's something that Bill Monroe kind of pioneered, is you have that that roll in your right hand right for the for the lack of a, of a better term because we don't have finger picks but you know this for the fiddle it's the shuffle for the band it's the roll the mandolin has to have this this very solid and just watch my compton play and you know what i'm talking absolutely about, you know? and then the final question do you have a, do you have a favorite beer uh yes i do um can i name two yes please do i really like Bell's Two-Hearted Ale. Love it. American IPA. And I like, from North Carolina, I like um, Dale's Pale Ale. And those are two IPAs that, to me, are not too uh, bitter, too hoppy. They have a nice body and enough malt to make it smooth. And, um, and, um, the only disadvantage of, well, you call it a disadvantage, could be a disadvantage to some folks, but it has a really high alcohol <laughs> yeah. count. It's like, what is it, like 6.8 or something. I mean, it's almost like a Bach beer. Yeah. Um, but it's just a really tasty beer. Did you have? Did you so. try the double two-hearted when they put it out last year? Oh, no, I didn't. Oh, I think it's 12%. Oh my god! Yeah, oh, but no. but it still oh. tastes amazing. Oh my! That's like more than wine. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hmm. I just looked at the can, which, by the way, I'm drinking beer because I'm thinking. I thought if I if I if you know if I talk to you for this podcast, I, I need to be drinking beer, and right. I was <laughs> I was des I was desperately waiting for that question. Who finally asked it? Anyway, seven percent. Two hearted ale, seven percent. So good, I love it. And you know, another beer that I like. Sorry, I'm taking you. No, time. no, this uh, is great. Um, I like Bavarian uh, wheat ale, Weiss beer, and uh, most liquor stores in in the U.S. carry Franziskaner or Weinstephaner um, or Schneider. They're all they're in bottles, um, half a pint, half a liter, uh, and um, and they have like this yeast deposit on the bottom of the can. And you are supposed to bring that into your glass to make it a little cloudy. And that's a really good beer. And speaking of Bell's Brewer, uh, Bell's Brewing Company, whatever, they have a beer called Oberon. This is not a joke. That is like a holiday in this household in March when Bell's makes it down to Charleston, South Carolina. That that's I love that beer so much that there's actually two bars that know to call us or text me when they tap the keg. <laughs> Next time you have one, I sh um, pour it into a glass and then kind of try to get everything out of it um, into the glass, and you'll see there's there's yeast um, that comes out into your glass, and and some people find that like my wife find that oh I don't want that. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but I, but, but me, I'm from Bavaria and this is how we do in yeah. Bavaria. You, you shake the bottle a little bit after pouring most of it out and then into your glass and, uh, and then you get that and you get that cloudy, um, quality 
And it's really, really good. I'm going to do, we have some Bells still, we stock up on it. So we still have some over on, uh, in the refrigerator, I think a couple bottles. So that's what I'm going to do here. Mark, this has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. This is, uh, this is great. Um, congrats again on the album. Everybody should buy a physical copy of it because just the, it's the thought that went into the, uh, to the packaging is amazing as is the, the music that is inside it. So it's, it's perfect all the way around. Well, thanks so much, Danny. I, I certainly appreciate it. And um, next time I we we're in the same room, um, I hope we I hope we get to to physically meet and talk and and maybe and maybe maybe uh, maybe whenever that may be, we may be able to shake hands. Either. That that was right. <laughs> if not, we'll definitely fist bump. <laughs> <laughs> Another incredible guest here on the Mandolins of Beer podcast. Thanks again for everybody for checking it out. Be sure to hit subscribe, maybe leave a review over there on the iTunes store. And cheers, y'all. Talk to you next week.